Let's just pray. Father, thank you again for the this kindness and the gentleness, the graciousness of that service of the Lord Jesus still serving on our behalf. Serving in order that we might be joyful. Thank you for the opportunity we had to discuss things together this afternoon concerning Peter and his fall and his restoration. We just look to you for special help now that you'd consolidate in our hearts and in our minds and, and understanding of, of these things. Not only an understanding, but give us an increased appreciation of the Lord Jesus and all that he's still doing for us. We pray this, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll read a passage and then again spend a little bit of time in coming to it. So, Old Testament, book of Zechariah. You find Matthew, go back a few pages from Matthew and you find Malachi, and you go back a few pages from Malachi and you find Zechariah. And we'll start reading in chapter 3. from the first verse he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Jehovah and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him and Jehovah said unto Satan Jehovah rebuke thee O Satan yea Jehovah that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he spoke and said unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from off him. And unto him he said, See, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. And I clothe thee with festival robes. And I said, Let them set a pure turban upon his head. And they set the pure turban upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of Jehovah stood by. And the angel of Jehovah protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith Jehovah of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, Then thou shalt also judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee a place to walk among these that stand by. We'll come to this passage in a moment, but I hope that everyone 
and can get a little impression of the parallels between what's happening here and what happened in the case of Peter. I think the, um, the first thing that um, every one of the groups referred to in regard to Peter is the activity of Satan. Satan, as the accuser, is standing by. He's standing by in this passage. And whenever there's an accuser, there's a need for an advocate. We see it with Peter. We see it with Joshua here. We also see it with Job. One thing that's really important to take notice of is that Satan is accusing in relation to something that already exists. We we noticed with regard to what the Lord said to Peter, he says, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. I have prayed. (coughs) Remember this, that in 1 John chapter 2, it says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It doesn't say if anyone sin, we get an advocate with the Father. We have him already. He is already our advocate. He's there, but he's there and he will function when we have sinned. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. (coughs) Peter said, I have prayed for you. Why did Peter, why did the Lord say to Peter, I have prayed for you? Because Peter had already sinned. We've got to be careful about not focusing too much on the three times the Lord was denied by Peter. We have to remember that that denial came from something that's deeper. An outward fall is always the consequence of an inward evil. And the entire process that the Lord is taking with Peter is not simply to deal with the outward thing. Not simply to deal with the outward fall, but to deal with the thing that is much deeper. And the thing that was much deeper, I I think it came out from some of the groups, certainly came out in the group that I was sitting in, that Peter was full of self-confidence. The whole failure... It doesn't come immediately, and it doesn't come all at once. One one of the other groups mentioned, there's there's this process, a gradual slipping away. The fall, the failure, the sin, it's not immediate, it's not all at once. It's step by step. Likewise, the restoration. Likewise, the service of the advocacy of the Lord Jesus. One of the things that he does as advocate is he speaks to the Father on our behalf. He speaks to the Father because Satan is there as an accuser. But another thing that he does, and we we notice this really strongly with Peter, is he works something in our own conscience. He works something towards us. And that came across by means of the look that the Lord gave to Peter. Remember what it said there? And Peter remembered 
the word of the Lord. The Lord's look was the means by which Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Now, the Lord is not here anymore. He's gone away. Do you remember something he said to his disciples? He said, if I go away, I'm going to leave you with another comforter. Now that word, another comforter, it's exactly the same word as this word, advocate. I'm going to leave you with another advocate. The Lord Jesus has gone away, so how does the Lord ever look at us? How does he ever give us that look? It's by means of the other comforter, the other advocate, the Holy Spirit who is down here. And what does he say about the Holy Spirit? He shall bring to your remembrance the things that I've spoken to you. That's how the Lord looks at us now. He's not standing and we can't, we can't look up and, and see his eyes looking at us. But the Holy Spirit within us works to bring to our remembrance the words of the Lord Jesus. And this is, as was said, the first step in the process by which repentance commences. Job and Peter, just like Jacob, had to be broken down. I think Daniel mentioned that as he was talking. Israel came out from Jacob who had been crippled. Israel, a prince with God. Jacob, a man who always did things the sneaky way, his own way, came out from a man who had been crippled. Peter, a stone, came out from Simon, the man who had been full of self-confidence and had been broken. Jacob had to give up his cunning. Job had to give up his self-righteousness. Peter had to give up his self-confidence. In each case, with each of those men, as the Lord broke them down through his advocacy, he produced something in them which was for himself. The strong man was converted. Is that the word of the Lord? When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He thought he was strong. He thought he was strong in himself. Lord, I won't deny you. When thou art converted. Conversion doesn't just mean a sinner coming to the Saviour. Conversion also means a believer who has sinned, being restored to his joy of fellowship with the Lord. When thou art converted, and Peter was converted, when he, his self-confidence was entirely broken down, then he's able to strengthen his brethren. If I'm full of self-confidence... How am, I only, how am I ever going to be able to strengthen someone else? Just you be like me and you'll be alright. Is that how Peter was ever going to help anyone? Peter could only help anyone else when he had been broken down and known that confidence in himself was no good. Yeah, um, a few more points. Peter's sorrow... That wasn't restoration. 
was part of the process. And I think one thing that we have noticed altogether as we've been looking at this is that in restoration, the Lord uses a process. It's not the same as the sin. It's not all at once, and it's not immediate. There is a process. Now, I think we've probably, many of us, learned in Sunday school, 1 John 1 9. <coughs> if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to make us feel better straight away. Well, no, we didn't actually learn that last bit, did we? We know that he's faithful and just to cleanse us. Peter had the opportunity of knowing from the moment of that look the Lord's forgiveness. But the Lord doesn't promise to make us feel better straight away. If you read the um, example in the Old Testament of the sacrifice of the red heifer in Numbers chapter 19, if an Israelite, because of carelessness, because of doing what he knew he shouldn't have done, got himself defiled... What he had to do was go and take the ashes of a heifer, a female cow that had been sacrificed, and with water, sprinkle those ashes on himself. It's like the the word of the Lord coming to our remembrance. We caused his death. We caused his suffering. But he did that on the third day after he was defiled. And then on the seventh day, he had to do it again. There was another, another step in the process. So before that man could be restored, a couple of things had to happen along the way. And that's exactly the way the Lord works with us. That's the way he worked with Peter. What he wanted to deal with in Peter was that self-confidence. And that's why he caused circumstances to come about by which Peter would then be in a position where he would fall into further sin by denying the Lord. We have to be very careful here because our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's not Jesus Christ, the unrighteous, or Jesus Christ, the tolerant, or Jesus Christ, the one who looks the other way. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Lord never causes us to sin. Very, very careful about that. But when sin is there, the Lord allows circumstances to occur by which we're going to learn what sin really is. And that's what happened with Peter. The Lord looks at Peter. Peter goes out and he weeps. The Lord comes to Peter privately. I think Ramez mentioned that in the summary. And then the Lord comes to Peter publicly. He comes to him and he says, you got anything to eat? Um, I was in Sahar's group and Sahar really emphasised this matter of spiritual food. In the process of our restoration, we need, we desperately need spiritual food. Satan wants to say to us, you've messed up so badly, just stay away just a bit longer. Stay away, don't pray, don't read your Bible, don't go to the meetings, you've messed up. Go back fishing or something. There's nothing wrong with fishing, absolutely nothing wrong with fishing. Do your gardening or or play the piano or maybe don't get the... um, 500 gigabytes of downloads on your phone that, that might not help much but you know it, it's Satan and he says just just keep your distance but the Lord says to Peter have you got anything to eat 
spiritual food is what we desperately need in order for the restoration to be made complete. But how does that happen? Does does the Lord come alongside us like he did with Peter and start asking us questions? Pick up Hannah now. This time, Hannah, do you love me? Does the Lord do that? Does Does he come alongside us physically and do that? He doesn't. So how does it happen? If we stop praying and if we stop reading our Bibles, if we stop going to the meetings where the Word of God is opened, then how's the Lord ever going to be asking us those sorts of questions? That's how He asks us today. He doesn't ask us by by physically walking alongside. He asks us by means of His Word. And so when we open His Word, when we know that He's working with us to restore us, when we open His Word, we've got to open His Word with willing hearts to have ourselves questioned. When we go to the meetings, we've got to go with willing ears listening for what the Lord is saying to me. Not, not go and say, oh yeah, that guy, he's speaking again. And that brother, you know, he always says stuff like that. No, none of that. It's what is the Lord saying to me? And what questions is he probing my heart about? Because that's the only way he, he can do it today. He doesn't come and walk beside us like he did with Peter. He does it through his word as we read it privately and as it comes to us publicly in the setting of meetings. Well, Joshua. I'm getting excited now. Joshua the high priest. Joshua is the representative of the nation of Israel. He's supposed to be their priest who stands in the presence of God and offers sacrifices on their behalf and and prays for them and does all of those things, but there's something wrong and he can't do his job properly. Joshua, this this is not an unbeliever, the picture here. It's a picture of one who is already in relationship with God. He knows God. He's, he's, a, he's a believer, a true, real believer in the picture. But he's standing there and he can't do his job properly. Why can't he do his job properly? His joy's been messed up because there's sin in his life. And the, the sin in his life, the picture of sin in his life, is he's wearing dirty garments. He's standing there, he's, he's covered in mud. And he can't function as a priest. This is exactly a picture of what sin does in our lives. We can't come into the presence of God and worship Him and and enjoy fellowship with Him when there's sin in our lives. Joshua's standing there, and he's standing there, and he's he's feeling like he's in a courtroom. Now, we should never feel like we're in a courtroom because God, the judge of all, is no longer that to us. We're in a relationship with a Father who loves us. We should never feel like we're in a courtroom. But Joshua did. Here's the courtroom. He's standing in the, in the dock. And then there's the, there's the, what are you calling the, I don't know the terminology. I forget that. Anyway, he's the accuser. Satan is standing there as the accuser. And Joshua, he must have been trembling because he's standing in the presence of God. The angel of Jehovah is standing next to him. And what's going to happen next? I just wanted to say something about Satan just for the moment. Um, 
in, in verses 1 and 2 here, in Zechariah 3, he gets that name by which we often hear him called. He's called Satan. And the word Satan, the name Satan, means one who is an adversary, one who is an enemy. There's other words that are used for Satan in Scripture. In um, Revelation chapter 9, he's called Abaddon and Apollyon. One's Greek and one is Hebrew, I think. And that means the destroyer. He's not only our enemy, he wants to destroy us. He's also called in the book of Revelation the dragon. And as the dragon, he's the devourer. He wanted to absolutely swallow up the Lord Jesus when he was born. And he worked behind the scenes to cause Herod to, to throw all the little... Not, I'm mixing up Pharaoh now to throw all the little boys in the river. To put all the little boys to death. This was Satan as the dragon. Then he's also called, in Revelation chapter 12, the serpent. And as the serpent, he's the deceiver. He wants to paint a picture that is not true and make us believe that it is true. We especially see Satan in that character in the Garden of Eden. And he comes to Eve and he says, Has God really said that? He paints a false picture in order to deceive the, the last name by which he's called in the book of Revelation is the devil. And the word devil means exactly what we've got here, the accuser. The one who stands in the presence of God and says, Look at Joshua, covered in filthy mud. How can a man like that ever come before you? Look at Jessica, all filthy. How can she ever stand in your presence? There's a warning sitting in the front. <laughs> um, that's what he does. Accuses. And I just want to say this, um, because it's a lesson we all need to take away. Um, I think we've probably all noticed it too many times, sadly, with some who are older than us. We've got to remember to turn... The spotlight on our souls. Satan does a really good job as being the accuser. He has lots of experience and lots of skill at pointing out the faults and the defects of believers and saying, well, look at them. He doesn't need our help. Especially when we're talking to one another. He doesn't need our help to point out the defects of other Christians. He's got enough experience, he's got enough skill at that. So, please, my brothers and sisters, be very, very careful. Careful of the way you talk about your fellow brothers and sisters, especially when you're talking to somebody else. The accuser of the brethren doesn't need any help from us. And too often, he gets lots of help. And that causes lots of trouble amongst the people of God. That's just a little lesson by the side. So let's be really careful about that. So here's an angel. Somebody called the Angel of Jehovah. He's standing... Um, Joshua is standing before him. I think in, in, in modern language... And I'm going to try and 
try and find Phil. Where's Phil? Um, up the back there. Um, in, in financial circles these days, um, there are people who, who are spoken about as being angels. A business angel. Have you ever heard that expression from anyone? Yeah, okay, well, if, I'm not going to recommend that you start reading financial stuff, but someone who's called a business angel is generally someone who's a wealthy person, a person who sees a business that's in trouble or in need of a bit of help, and in order to get that business out of trouble or to get it off the ground, he says, I'm going to put in some of my personal wealth into that, or actually for um, for some benefit for myself. He sees the business has got potential and he says, I'm going to invest in that, get it out of trouble, get it up and running again and make a profit out of it. Well, here the angel in a similar way is one who sees a business, the business of Joshua, he sees this business in trouble and he's going to put in some of his own wealth, he's going to put in some of his own capital, not to get something out of it, although he will, won't he? Um, this angel is not a wealthy businessman. This angel is Jehovah himself. But notice verse 2. Jehovah is two people. Look at verse 2. Jehovah said to Satan, Jehovah rebuke thee. Jehovah said to Satan, Jehovah rebuke thee. I'm going to put a number one and a number two against that. Jehovah number one said to Satan, Jehovah number two, <coughs> rebuke thee. Jehovah, the Old Testament name for God, is a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here's Satan standing in the presence of the Father, trying to point out the faults of a believer. And the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, he says, Satan, Jehovah, the Father, rebuke thee. We get a little impression here of the advocacy of the Lord Jesus. As advocate, the Lord Jesus confronts Satan and he says, the Father is going to rebuke you. Why? Why is he going to rebuke you? Because this man, Joshua, he calls him a brand plucked out of the fire strange expression, but a piece of wood that was sitting in the fire that was about to catch light and be burned up completely, and someone came along and pulled it out of the fire and saved it from burning. That's what Joshua was. He's one who has been saved from the burning of the fire. And that's how the advocacy of the Lord Jesus works for us in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. It goes on then in verse 2 to say, He is the propitiation for our sins. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus has already saved us. And because that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus has saved us, He can stand in the Father's presence and say, That one's one of mine. He's one that belongs to me. He's one that knows me as Saviour. And whatever Satan is saying, forget it. Because whatever Satan is saying has no basis whatsoever. A saved person is saved. We had this in session number one today. A saved person is saved forever. His sins are never remembered anymore. His conscience is completely purified. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is absolutely complete. Never needs to be repeated. A saved person is totally safe. This is, this is kind of, we might say, 
the, the first activity or the primary activity of the Lord Jesus towards the Father as our advocate. There's a, I don't know how we can put it, it relates to the security, the absolute security of our salvation. But now we're going to see that there's some, there's more than that that happens. Not only does the Lord Jesus pray for us, like he prayed for Peter, like he works here in favour of Joshua, but something else has to happen. Verse 3, Joshua is standing in filthy garments. In verse 4, he says to others who stood by, take away his filthy garments. Now, it will often be the case that the way the Lord works with us as our advocate is to use other believers to get to our conscience. I mentioned already. He doesn't come and walk by our side and ask us questions. He uses other believers. And and we, when we're conscious that we need restoration in some way, when we're conscious that we have sinned in some way, we need to be very, very careful now. Because what happens normally in our case? An older brother? Well, not necessarily older. A brother. Or a sister comes to us and says, Sam, you don't seem as joyful anymore. Is there something wrong? Or, that thing that I've seen you doing, that thing that I've seen you spending time on, I'm a little bit worried about that. How do we normally react when someone comes along like that? Who do you think you are? You get your own life sorted out before you start asking me questions. Do you think you're perfect? What right have you got to ask? Do we ever act like that? Jehovah said to those standing by here, take away his filthy garments. The brothers and sisters who were standing beside Joshua had a responsibility to go to him and say... Joshua, we need to help you here. We need to take away these filthy garments from off you. Some of these bad habits that you've got, some of those ways that have got you into trouble, we we need to get you out of that trouble. Remember when the Lord raised Lazarus from the dead? He says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, he comes forth. How does he come? Like this. I don't know how he actually made it. He might have been... He was bound up with grave clothes. And he comes out, and the Lord says to those standing by, loose him and let him go. There's a job of other believers in helping us to get right, in helping us in that process of restoration. The Lord uses others. So here's... um, I, I did the... Don't play Satan's role in being the accuser. But here's another big lesson to take away. Because we all will need restoration at some point. Don't ever think that if someone else comes in order to help, that that someone else should mind his own business, should keep quiet, should get his own life in order first. Accept that help from the Lord. Accept it from the Lord. Because that's the way he's going to bring about restoration. 
I should say that he, he won't always use other believers. It may be that when we're in private looking at the scriptures, we read something and something just comes straight to the conscience and we realise that God is speaking to us. But very, very often he does use others. With Peter, just one look. With Joshua, he uses these ones that were standing by. And then the, um, the other thing in the process here with Joshua, in verse 6 and 7, just like with Peter, he speaks to Joshua about his future behaviour, about what he wants him to do in the future. He says, if you'll walk in my ways, if you'll behave in this certain way, then um, you'll be a real great service amongst the people of God. So here's another step in the process that matches exactly Peter. The Lord speaks to Joshua about how he's going to behave in the future. There's, some, there's a number of different positions here. And, and this is just to reinforce the lesson. There's some standing, and there's some walking, and there's some sitting. So notice, first up, verse 1. High priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of Jehovah. This is the standing of one who is guilty. He's standing there guilty, wondering what's going to happen next. There's somebody else standing in verse 1, it's Satan. He's standing there accusing. So there's the standing of the guilty one, the standing of the accusing one. And then in verse 3, Joshua again standing. Now he's awaiting the sentence. I've just heard Satan accusing me. I know that he's, he's troubling my, my conscience. What's the outcome of this going to be? Then in verse 4, it says he spoke to those that stood before him. This is his brothers and sisters in Christ standing by in order to bring about restorative ministry. Service of restoration of those who are standing by. We need one another. Verse 5, the angel of Jehovah stood by. Here's the Lord Jesus himself. He is standing. He's standing now as the advocate. Is that a contradiction? Remember very early this morning, we spoke about the work of the Old Testament priests. They were offering sacrifices day after day after day, and they were always standing. Why? Because their work was never finished. And we contrasted that in Hebrews with the work of the Lord Jesus, when after offering one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. His sacrificial work for sins was finished, so he sat down. And now we're reading about him standing. Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. Because his work as advocate has a completely different... different character to his sacrificial work for our salvation. When we've sinned and we need restoration, we don't need to go to the Saviour again and get saved again. 
We don't need to go back to the sacrifice of Christ again and say, Lord Jesus, I believe on you as my Savior and I confess my sins to you and I want you to come into my life. That's not what we need. What we need is a different kind of service. The sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus is over. In regard to that, he's sitting down. But the service of the Lord Jesus towards us as advocate has not finished. And in relation to that, he's standing. He's still working. He's still serving. And he will always be working and serving in our benefit as long as we're here. And as long as he's there. And he'll always be there. We won't always be here. He'll always be there. So then verses 6 and 7. Not standing anymore. It's now walking. In verse 6, he says to... Um, it says he protested unto Joshua. It's like he's like what he said to that woman in John chapter 8, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. It's a word to the conscience. It's a word, I want you to be careful now about your behaviour. And so in verse 7 he says, if you will walk in my ways, then certain things will happen. Walk. Walk's one of those Bible picture words. That means how we live, how we behave. If you will walk in my ways, then you shall judge my house. And then he says in the end of the verse, I'll give thee a place to walk among these that stand by. Walk in my ways, that's our Christian behaviour. Walk among these that stand by, that's Christian fellowship. Remember, sin spoils our fellowship. Sin spoils our joy. Restoration brings us back into the enjoyment of fellowship again, working among those that stand by. And then lastly, in verse 8, we didn't read that, but he says, Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. Now he's restored. He's walking in the ways of the Lord. He's walking among those that stand by. He's in fellowship with others. Now he can do something. Now he's got others who are sitting before him. Now he's serving towards others. Now he's like Peter. Peter, strengthen your brethren. Is this, is this picture, does this ring true for you? Does it match up the way the Lord served Peter as advocate? For me it does. I, I, hope, I hope everyone can see this. That these are giving us the principles by which the Lord works as our advocate. First, he prays for us. Second, he works bringing to our remembrance his word. He speaks to our conscience. Third, he liberates us from those things that were holding us back. He uses others. Fourth, he speaks to us a word of exhortation, a word of challenge about our future behaviour. And then finally, he brings us to the point where we can be of service to others because we've learned the lessons that he wants us to learn. Job. What was the problem with Job? Was Job a, a terrible sinner? Was Job somebody who had denied the Lord three times? And yet Satan went into the presence of God about Job. And Satan said to God, I want him. I want to have him. 
You know, he's only, he's only um, living an upright kind of life because you're looking after him. You've given him lots of cattle, you've given him a big family, you've given him a nice house, you've given him all of those things. You're protecting him like that, and so that's why he's living an upright kind of life. Um, and God says to Satan, okay, you can have him, but you can't touch his life. Nothing Satan can do can take away our spiritual life. It's an important lesson there. But there was an issue with Job, and very quickly in the story of the book of Job, Satan disappears. Because Satan's work as the accuser, um, it can't go on for very long. But the story of the book of Job continues for quite a long time afterwards. Job has three friends, those that stood by and sadly, they're playing the, the role of Satan as the accuser. They're saying, Job, you must have done something really, really bad for this bad stuff to happen to you. God's punishing you because of those bad things that you did. And then Job's on his side saying, absolute rubbish. I haven't done anything wrong. You guys are wrong. You're, you're accusing me falsely. And they continue this dialogue back and forth and back and forth. Job, you've done something wrong. God's punishing you because you've done something wrong. Job's saying, no, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm okay. And it comes through to the end, towards the end of the book of Job, and another young man, a young man who had been sitting and listening to all that these older guys had been saying, he stands up and he says, I'm sure the Spirit of God has given me something to say. And he says to Job, God is great and you are small. Basically, that's his message. God is great and you are small. And as he's speaking, he opens the door for God to come in and speak directly with Job and challenge Job. He says to Job, you wanted to talk with me? Okay, now here's your opportunity. What, what do you want to say? Job shrinks down and it says he repented in dust and ashes. Repented of what? All the time he'd been saying, I haven't been committing sins. I'm okay. I've done nothing wrong. He repented. What did he repent of? He repented of saying that. He repented of his self-righteousness. Long, long process that the Lord took with Job in order to break him down to make him repent of his self-righteousness. And we're going to stop. Because... It's true that the Lord often takes a long process with us. Sometimes the thing that we think was the sin that we needed to confess in obeying 1 John 1 9, we think, confess that sin and then I'll be cleansed from all unrighteousness and I'll be happy and I'll be okay. But the Lord is actually dealing with another sin. He's dealing with something that's deeper than the thing that we've noticed. And that dealing might take quite a process. It might result in bitter experiences, in bitter tears, in things where he has to use others of the people of God to come and help us by removing from us those things that have separated us from the joy that we can have in, in fellowship with him. And those things might be humbling, it might be embarrassing, 
they might cause many, many tears. And they might take a long time. But that's the Lord's way. I think that's enough, isn't it? Lesson number one yesterday. The Lord wants us near him. Lesson number two today. The Lord wants us to be joyful. And we can only be joyful when we're occupied with him. When we're in fellowship with him. And when sin that's in our lives that has spoiled that joy and spoiled that fellowship. Has been dealt with as a result of the service of our advocate. He's still serving us and will continue to serve us. A wonderful servant, wonderful saviour, wonderful advocate.